it gives me the greatest of pleasure to be able to introduce our speaker. My name, I should say, is Paula Gooder, and I'm the Canon Chancellor here at St. Paul's Cathedral. I oversee the learning and theology that takes place within the <coughs> cathedral. But a very long time ago, when I was an undergraduate, my professor of Old Testament, the person who inspired me to love the Old Testament as I still do today, was a certain Professor John Barton, <laughs> Oriel and Lang Professor of Interpretation of Holy Scripture. John remains the professor, but he is now Professor Emeritus. There was something about John's passion for scholarship, for teaching, that lit fires in me that have never gone out. I can still remember, after all these many years, John's lectures on the exile, if you remember those a long time ago. <laughs> well, I do, and they were absolutely brilliant. So I am sure absolutely confident that you will enjoy John's talk tonight as he reflects on the history of the Bible and his newer book on the word on the translation of the Bible. Both books have been very, very well received, as I'm sure you already know. Um, the Times called the history of the Bible nothing short of a masterpiece. So we are in for a treat this evening. Please join me in welcoming John Barton. Well, thank you very much indeed, Paula, for that very warm and kind introduction. Um, and thank you for the invitation to come and speak at St. Paul's. As a Londoner, I always think of St. Paul's as, in some sense, my cathedral. I've visited it rather seldom over the years since I come from the far western reaches of the diocese. But um, it's very good to be here. This talk is based on my book, A History of the Bible, and I want to speak about how the Bible is a vital resource for Christian faith and how it developed over a long period of time and in varied settings. Today, the Church of England commemorates the martyrdom of Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, who gave us, of course, the Book of Common Prayer, and who described the Bible as a fountain and well of truth. And we think of the Bible rightly, therefore, as the foundation of faith. But I also want to think about an aspect of an equal and opposite truth that two faiths, Christianity and Judaism, are also in a way the foundation of the Bible, which is perhaps a less familiar idea. But let's start with a strange and unexpected tension in the Bible that we probably don't usually notice. Let's start by thinking about Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is central in several of the stories of Jesus' resurrection appearances in the Gospels. She's the first, or one of the first, to see Jesus risen. And the scene in the garden where she mistakes the risen Lord for the gardener is unforgettable. She passes on the news to the other disciples. 
And for that reason, some in the ancient church called her the Apostle to the Apostles. The Elizabethan and Jacobean bishop and scholar Lancelot Andrews, who chaired the translators of the King James or Authorized Version Bible, um, uh, wrote this, Mary was an apostle indeed, for what lacked she sent first, immediately from Christ himself. And what is an apostle but so? Apostolos in Greek, of course, means envoy, someone sent. Secondly, she was sent to declare and make known. And last, what was she to make known? Christ's rising and ascending. And what are they but the gospel? Yea, the very gospel of the gospel. Over the centuries, there grew up a lot of speculative literature about Mary Magdalene, including various improbable legends. See, or preferably don't see, Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, <laughs> of which more later. But the New Testament Gospels already justify Mary's importance as the first witness of the risen Christ. Those like me who've been enthusiastic about the ordination of women as bishops, so in some sense successors of the apostles, have asked with Lancelot Andrews, what does Mary lack of being called an apostle? And if he was right, then the central importance of women in the very beginnings of the gospel of Christ is surely as firm as it could possibly be. And yet, the New Testament elsewhere gives us a different impression. If we turn to St. Paul, then in 1 Corinthians 15, we find him saying this, Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Nothing here about the women of the, of the tomb, and specifically, nothing about Mary Magdalene. And there are other strange features too. Paul seems to distinguish between all the apostles and the twelve, where we're used to identifying them. He mentions an appearance to James, which is nowhere else recorded in the New Testament. And what about these 500 brothers that may be both brothers and sisters, as modern translators suggest, but 500 witnesses of the resurrection who are never mentioned again in the New Testament? And was Paul's own vision of Jesus really the same as that of these other people, as the passage suggests? After all, Paul's Damascus Road experience, as described in the Acts of the Apostles, sounds like a different kind of event in which Paul saw a light and heard a voice, but didn't actually see Jesus. Whatever the solution to all these puzzles, they're not imaginary. If you read the text carefully, you can see that they seem to pull in different ways. Now, I'm not saying that the gospel accounts aren't true, nor am I trying to find a devious way 
to undermine the ordination of women, uh, to which I'm enthusiastically committed by, as it were, downplaying Mary Magdalene. What I'm trying to point out is simply that Paul doesn't speak in the same voice as the Gospels on this central question of who were the witnesses to the resurrection. The Gospels were probably written several decades after Paul's letters, which can also be a surprising fact when you first encounter it. But of course, they may very well rest on much earlier testimony going back to the earliest disciples. And there may be some way of reconciling their accounts of the resurrection appearances with Paul's. My point is just that on the face of it, there's a difficulty, a tension. An impartial reader, especially one interested in Mary Magdalene, would notice the difference. It makes our tendency to think of the New Testament's teaching as a unity a bit wobbly, and not on a minor matter, but on a central one, the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I don't make this point to attack the Bible. My own belief is that if God wants us to have the Bible, this is evidently the sort of Bible he wants us to have. One that isn't, at least in human terms, perfect. At least, not perfectly simple, but complicated. Sometimes reflecting the different ideas of different authors. It's a collection of varied books, not a single book, with one consistent author. But the reason I mention this rather important question at this point is as a reminder that the Bible does not only record history, it has a history itself. The reason why even on central matters of faith, it doesn't always speak with a single clear voice, is that it came to be over a long period of time and in different cultural contexts. And in my history of the Bible, I've outlined the history of how the books of the Bible were each composed how they were compiled into the big collection we've got now, how this collection came to be canonized, regarded as Holy Scripture, and then how they've been interpreted down the ages, which is a lot. And it's why my book, I'm afraid, even though it's only a sketch, is over 600 pages long. You have to read it, I don't. <laughs> so the Bible contains many different voices. But this can be seen not only in tensions, such as the one I've just been thinking about, but also in the fact that it's often not a case of one book contradicting another, but of just being a different kind of book. There is a tremendous variety of types of literature in the Bible. There isn't a genre of literature called Bible. There are different sorts of literature in the Bible. In the New Testament, Gospels and Letters which belong to completely different kinds of writing. And in the Old Testament, narrative or history, law, books of sayings such as Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, prophecy, and poetry, especially, of course, the Psalms. It's like a whole library of Israel's literature, not a single book in any normal sense of the word book. How did all these varied books get put together? People sometimes think there must have been a big pool of books. And someone in authority, a bishop or a church council,
council, or in the case of Jewish scripture, a rabbinic council, must have made a selection from this pool of books and then issued a ruling that this was to be the Bible. And that's more or less what Dan Brown thinks. He thinks the New Testament wasn't put together till the late 300s AD. And until then, a lot of other texts were still being revered, texts that were later regarded as heretical. He has a conspiracy theory that the official church suppressed books it didn't like. Uh, and he hints that the suppressed books were better than the ones that got into the Bible and above all, taught a sexier kind of Christianity. But the reality is that most of the books he has in mind are much later than what's in the New Testament. And they were of fairly marginal interest to most Christians. The books now in our Bibles mostly came together silently and by general consent. There certainly were official church rulings in the late 300s, Mostly, though, they only formalized what was already widely accepted anyway. As early as the second century, the New Testament scriptures were already more or less what they are now, without anyone having to have ruled on it. If we ask the question, who chose the four Gospels, for example, the answer appears to be that no one did they seem, rather mysteriously, almost to have chosen themselves. By the time bishops and councils said they were to be accepted and revered, they were accepted and revered anyway. And passing a decree that people should go on doing what they're already doing tends to be quite popular. My book also looks at how the Bible's been read and interpreted in various periods concentrating on the early centuries of our era, the Middle Ages, the Reformation, and the modern period. I come at all this from a Christian perspective, but I've done my best to describe Jewish ways of reading the Bible too. And I've got one chapter in particular that contrasts Christian interpretations with Jewish ones. I begin it by thinking about the famous Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols at King's College, Cambridge, which is such an important part for many of the celebration of Christmas in England. The service begins with a bidding, which includes what amounts to an interpretation of the whole of the Bible in one sentence. Let us read and mark in Holy Scripture the tale of the loving purposes of God from the first days of our disobedience unto the glorious redemption brought us by this holy child. In this formulation, the Bible is seen as a story about a disaster, our disobedience, meaning Adam and Eve, followed by a rescue mission, redemption through Christ. And this idea of what the Bible is essentially about disaster and rescue, is so ingrained in Western culture that to most people with any kind of Christian background, it seems simply obvious. It can therefore come as a shock to Christians when they first encounter a mainstream Jewish way of reading the Old Testament, or we should say the Hebrew Bible. 
In Judaism, the story the Bible tells is not one of disaster and rescue, much more of providential guidance. The main character is not Adam, since in Judaism, as it's developed down to modern times, there is no emphasis at all on the Garden of Eden story as an account of the so-called fall of the human race, as Christians call it, and there's no doctrine of original sin. Much more central in a Jewish reading of the Bible is Abraham, the founder of the people of Israel. And the biblical story is read as the story of how his descendants lived in the land that God gave them, were expelled from it when they sinned, but were afterwards allowed back and given an ongoing existence. There is no emphasis on salvation at least not in the otherworldly and individual sense that Christians have often given the word salvation, but rather on God's leadership and guidance of the people as a corporate entity. The prophets are seen as guides for the path, and there are a few predictions of, there are a few predictions of the Messiah, but they're not in any way central for a Jewish reading or very important in most strands of Judaism. It's quite true, of course, that Jews don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but it's a Christian fantasy that most Jews are very interested in the question anyway. Messianic hopes generally are a minority interest in most modern branches of Judaism. In the Jewish arrangement of the biblical books, which Christians call the Old Testament. The last book is the book of Chronicles, and that ends with the exiled Jews being given permission by the Persian ruler Cyrus to return to the Promised Land. The Old Testament does not end, as for Christians, with the prophecy of the return of Elijah in the book of Malachi, which the New Testament then sees as fulfilled in the arrival of John the Baptist. So two very different ways of construing and understanding the narrative flow of the books. And therefore, for Jewish readers, mostly, the Bible isn't about fall and redemption, as we get it in the King's service. Paradise lost and paradise regained are Christian ways of looking at the Bible, but generally not Jewish ones. In Judaism, the Bible is about how to live a faithful life as a Jew in the ups and downs of the ongoing history of the people of Israel. It's usually said that Jews and Christians share the Old Testament and differ simply in whether or not they regard the New Testament as also part of the Bible. And that is, strictly speaking, true. But it misses the point. Jews and Christians do indeed share these books, but they traditionally read them in such different ways that it's almost as though they were different books. And, and here's my point. It's very hard to show that one of the ways of reading them is exclusively the right way and necessarily better than the other because the books are so diverse, so baggy, if you like, that you can read them in many ways. There are potentially lots of different ways of seeing the Bible as hanging together 
and making overall sense. The Bible helps to shape our faith, certainly, but our faith, of whichever kind it is, helps us to have some guidelines when we read the Bible. This sounds a bit circular, perhaps, but all reading is a bit like that. So I end my book with a chapter of brief reflections on the place of the Bible in religious faith. It seems to me that the relation of the Bible to our faith, whether Christian or Jewish, isn't a direct one. The Christian and Jewish reading uh, of uh, the Bible are both partly driven by forces external to the Bible. As I've just been saying, Christian approaches depend on the Christian narrative of fall and redemption. And Jewish approaches on the rabbinic tradition as formulated in works known as the Mishnah and the Talmud and in Jewish commentaries. The two approaches do partly derive from the Bible in both cases, but they're also partly imposed upon it. We could portray the relation of the Bible and the faiths that claim it as their basis by a drawing of intersecting circles. Both Judaism and Christianity overlap significantly with their Bibles, which are a vital resource for them. Yet from the Bible, we could not read off either faith as we in fact encounter them. Nor could we predict the contents of the Bible from either faith as we know it. If you give someone a Bible and tell them that that will teach them the Christian faith, they'll be rather baffled and tell you that they need some guidance. Because for most of us, the Bible doesn't explain itself. There are many issues which Christians see as central to their faith and prominent in the church's creeds that aren't mentioned a lot in the Bible. God as Trinity, the divinity of Jesus Christ, the nature of the resurrection. I don't mean, of course, that those things aren't there, but the main weight of the New Testament books doesn't fall on them as we might expect. Conversely, there are central features in the New Testament that don't appear in the creeds. Jesus' teachings and his miracles, or doctrines such as Paul's idea of justification by grace through faith. It's not that the Bible and the creeds contradict each other, but they have different emphases. Similarly in Judaism, quite central features, such as the laws about kosher and non-kosher foods, are certainly based on the Hebrew Bible, on passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but they have nothing like the prominence there that they enjoy in Judaism today. Both faiths pick out particular points from the Bible and emphasize them while making less of others. To read every passage in a book as large and varied as the Bible, as if it were equal in importance with every other, is an impossible task. We all highlight or foreground some parts and let others take a back seat. That's just how reading works. And it's why the same book can always be read differently by different people. If that weren't so, reading groups would be rather pointless and boring 
apart from the alcohol. <laughs> so the relation of the Bible to its faiths isn't direct. It's more complicated than that. No version of Judaism claims to be simply biblical. But there are versions of Christianity that do, though I don't think the claim is true. They always have other sources for their beliefs that act as a bridge between the Bible and the faith. Not everything in the Bible is central to either of the faiths it's related to, nor conversely do those faiths depend only on the Bible. That's particularly clear if we think about the New Testament. There were Christians before there were Christian scriptures. The first Christians we read about in the New Testament didn't yet have a New Testament themselves. Something really obvious, but we tend sometimes to forget it. They were writing it, they didn't have it to refer to. The Bible serves Christians as a resource for their faith, but if that faith hadn't existed to begin with, there wouldn't be a Christian Bible to act as a resource because it was produced by people who were already Christians. A further fact to remind us that the Bible we hold in our hands isn't identical with our faith is that almost everyone who reads the Bible reads it in translation. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, the New Testament in Greek, but only a tiny handful of Christians can read any of those languages. And that makes most of us dependent on the work of translators who do know these languages. But such people are fallible mortals. Even if we believed that every word of the Bible in its original languages was inspired or even dictated by God, we'd still need to remember that it reaches most of us through the hands of human translators. When we read the words of Jesus in English, we're reading a translation from a record of them written in Greek. But that Greek version of Jesus' words was already a translation because Jesus almost certainly taught in Aramaic. Jesus can't have said precisely what we read in the authorized version of the Jerusalem Bible or the New International Version, or any other English Bible, because all those versions are two stages removed from the actual words of Jesus. His words were spoken in Aramaic, recorded in Greek, then translated into English. We hear his overall message in the New Testament, of course, but we don't hear the actual words he spoke. The Bible in any version you buy looks absolute and authoritative, but really it's only as good as the translators. A vivid memory from my school days is how scandalized we all were when our English teacher suggested that there might be a mistake in the Oxford English Dictionary. I suppose now I've been in Oxford so long, I find it even more scandalous. <laughs> Surely we felt the dictionary was infallible. No, he said, the lexicographer might have been having a bad day and slipped up. It was the first time I'd ever thought of lexicographers as people, uh, rather than a kind of name behind the text. But the same is true of translation, including biblical translation. 
Biblical translators are highly professional, are often brilliant scholars and linguists, but they have their weaknesses, their prejudices, their wrong assumptions, and their patches of ignorance. And they're fallible, just like you and me. And even if the translators were perfect, whatever that might mean, their translations wouldn't be perfect, because all translations are necessarily a compromise. A compromise between the meaning of what you're translating in its original context and language, and what it's possible to say in the language you're translating it into. And there is always some slippage. It's not just difficult, it's literally impossible to do full justice to both the source and the target, as they as they're called, at the same time. So translations of any book, including the Bible, are potentially infinite in number, and they can't all be perfectly right. Indeed, none of them can be perfectly right. A perfect translation is not just a practical, but a logical impossibility, because of the different ways words work in different languages. Even the best translation can never be more than good enough. So since my history was published, I've written another book, The Word, which looks at this whole question of translating the Bible. I try to show that translators are aiming at a good enough version for particular purposes of the Bible, and the Bible they're translating itself didn't drop from heaven. It wasn't written by God's own hand. Indeed, if you look through the Bible, there is only one place where the Bible is claimed to have been written by the hand of God, and that is for the Ten Commandments, which are said to have been written by God's hand. Nothing else in the Bible makes that claim. We shouldn't ask of the Bible more than a book written by human beings could possibly be. But like its good enough translations, the Bible in its original languages is also certainly good enough. Good enough to help in bringing us to God. It tells us so much that we could never have told ourselves. And it draws on many encounters with God and God's involvement with the human race. It's not trivial or imperfect in a bad sense, but it isn't perfect because it's a book, and books cannot be perfect. To claim more for it than this, more than the most that is possible for a book made up of human words and translated by human minds into human languages, is so implausible that paradoxically it really diminishes the excellence that the Bible does have if you try to believe it. Claiming too much for anything actually devalues it. We know from advertisements that if they tell us that something is the best it could possibly be, we immediately disbelieve it. People don't believe the hype, and consequently they dismiss the good that is actually there because it's not perfection. This is not a modern insight into the Bible. It was already said of the Bible in the 16th century by the great English divine Richard Hooker, whose words, in his rather convoluted Elizabethan English, which I won't try in this rather echoing building, um, but I quote them at the beginning and end of my history of the Bible. What he says is, in effect, 
insisting that the Bible is perfect creates an open goal for the opponents of faith because no one has much difficulty in finding super imperfections in it and pointing them out. But if we acknowledge that the Bible is good enough, we've more chance of persuading people that it's worth taking seriously because it is good enough, both positive, not negative words. It's a big compendium of important and fascinating human responses to God, informing and informed by the beliefs and insights of two great world religions, Judaism and Christianity. Things that aren't absolutely perfect aren't therefore totally worthless. We never think in that polarized way in any other sphere. Christians have found that the Bible has in it enough to guide us to God. No need, I believe, to claim more. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. Um, those who have been sending questions via Twitter have been sending them. They're pinging into my computer. So can I now invite those of you who want to use the more traditional forms of communication, the writing with your pen on a piece of paper, Good. to do so? And when you've got a question um, that you would like to submit, um, exactly as this lady is doing down here, raise it and it will be um, collected from your hand and taken to the table at the back. Mm -hmm. So while we're doing that, um, I wondered if I could indulge myself in asking um, my question first, John, and then uh, we'll get on to the others. I, I remember, um, as an undergraduate, you teaching mm -hmm. us about the formation of ca the canon oh. and how the canon um, shaped. <coughs> and um, I remember thinking at the time, yes, but why were those books kept? Um, what was it about them? that made them the ones that were kept and used and preserved in the traditions. Have you got any reflections on well, that? It is, I mean, it is very puzzling because, mm. as I said, it's not that someone sat down and said, oh, we'll have those, you know, exactly. They seem to have established themselves. I mean, I would say that whether one sees this as, as providential, if you compare the books that are in the New Testament with the books that might have been in the New Testament, the so-called apocryphal New Testament, which you can buy in many editions. Um, in, in, uh, indeed, you can buy it in Penguin. I should put in a plug for my publisher. Um, but um, uh, if you look at them, you will rarely think, I so much wish this were in the New Testament. You will normally think, I'm so glad it isn't, <laughs> because they are peculiar. I mean, there are, inf there are gospels about the infancy of Jesus in which he kills people who um, mock at him, for example. Um, they're very peculiar texts. There are one or two, the, the so-called Proto-Evangelium of James, which is a second century work. That's where we get Mary writing uh, and various other uh, things that are in all our ideas of Christmas, but are not actually in the New Testament. They come from there. But apart from very few works of that kind, uh, most of the books are you know, fairly clearly inferior to what's in the New Testament. There might be things in the New Testament that someone feels are not 
of the highest quality, as it were, but very rarely do they sink as low as the kind of thing you find in some of the apocryphal books. So I, I think it's partly, as it were, good, uh, not literary, but good religious taste on the part of the people who either transmitted those books or dropped them. And occasionally they were banned, but that's rarely the case, in fact. They just fell away, I think. That's the best I can do. And um, since I've asked you one question mm. on canon, I hope you'll indulge yeah. me with a second. Um, you've spoken mostly about the formation of the New Testament canon. Uh -huh. yes. um, can I tempt you to a little mm. reflection on the formation of the Hebrew Bible and Christian Old Testament, depending on right. how you want to cast yeah. them? Well, I mean, interestingly, um, I think the Hebrew Bible, what we think of as the Old Testament, formed in a rather similar way, that you do not get rulings by groups of rabbis saying these books are to be in the Bible and others aren't, or you hardly get them. You get just the recognition that these are the books we quote from. If you look at the evidence of which books are quoted and referred to in later books, for both the New and the Old Testament, you will find that, that they form a kind of canon, a group of quotable books, um, and that very little that's outside the Hebrew Bible now, just as very much as outside the New Testament now, is quoted by later writers. Some things are, but not very many. Uh, and so it looks as though the Hebrew Bible also formed uh, invisibly and silently by the time of Jesus I think all the books that are now in the Hebrew Bible were regarded by Jews as authoritative. There are other books that are in what Protestants call the Apocrypha and Catholics call deuterocanonical books, Tobit, Judith, um, Ecclesiasticus, one or two others, um, which um, are not recognized now by Jews but are by some Christians. But if you look at the, the and, and fewer of them are quoted in the New Testament. But if you look at the books that are quoted in the New Testament and in rabbinic Jewish literature, you will find fairly soon that they're only the books that are now in the Bible. So they seem to have formed uh, rather silently to have been recognized. And much later people say, oh, that isn't in the canon. But that's not a sort of very early reaction, I think. Mm. The only book in the Apocrypha, as, as Protestants call it, which the rabbis really discuss is the book of Ecclesiasticus. That's not Ecclesiastes, it's the wisdom of Jesus, son of Syrah, which is a wonderful book of Proverbs, which Christian writers used a lot in antiquity, and many Jews revered so much that they wished it was in the Bible, but they knew it was too late to be part of the Bible. Mm. <laughs> So there's a lot of questions about interpretation, so I'd like to ask you a little cluster about interpretation. And I thought I'd start with this one, which I think is a very interesting one. What's your advice for someone who's been taught to read the Bible literally? Right. Well, literally is a, quite a sort of um, variable word in a way, because sometimes um, by reading the Bible literally mean people really mean reading it as always true. And so people sometimes say, well, to make, shall we say, Genesis 1, you know, the story of creation, we think it's true, and therefore we read it not actually literally, but rather metaphorically. So we say these days that apparently are meant literally in the text 
are really not days, but very long eons of time. Now, that isn't reading it literally, but it's reading it as true. It's insisting that it's true. If you read it literally and say the world was made in seven day, six days, sorry, um, you know, days meaning what we mean by days, then um, there, are no, there are very, very few scientists, however strong their Christian convictions, who would be prepared to agree with that. And so the normal thing for Christians who want to highlight Genesis 1 is to read it actually non-literally. If you read it literally, you're almost bound to say it's not true, and that, of course, is worse uh, in, in the minds of many Christians. I think I often do actually read the Bible literally and therefore sometimes say this read literally is not quite true, um, that there are things in the Bible that are not, historically speaking, true. Though I think all people who love the Bible go on to say even a story in the Bible that isn't true may have a lot of truth in it. Historical truth is not the only kind of truth. And there might be stories in the Gospels like the parables which, of course, are not true. I mean, there wasn't a good Samaritan who did all those things, as far as we know. Um, but the story is still very true in that it tells you a lot about what God wishes. So I think reading the Bible literally is not quite the same as reading the Bible as true. That's a distinction I'd rather insist on, I think. And that seems to mm. roll into this question, um, which I think is equally fascinating. What role does the Holy Spirit play mm. in the interpretation of Scripture? Well, <clears throat> the truthful answer is I really don't know, I'm afraid. I mean, I, mean, I, I can't, I can't second-guess what the Holy Spirit is doing. Um, Christians have always thought that when they interpret Scripture rightly, and when they have right thoughts in general, God's Holy Spirit is is behind them, I mean behind them in the sense of driving them on, as it were, and taking them to that place. But it seems to me that normally one can only know what the Spirit was saying after the event in many ways. It's a problem in Christianity, rather like the problem of prophecy in the Old Testament, that you only know a prophet is true when his sayings come true, and by then, in a way, it's too late. You know, you, the thing's already happened. And similarly with interpreting the Bible, to know that your interpretation was really spirit-filled, I think is more than mortals can know. But you might look back and say, when that person interpreted the Bible, it was an inspired interpretation. But as you're doing it, I don't think you can know that without the risk of falling into arrogance and spiritual pride. That's my best answer, mm -hmm. I think. And, um there's one here that I think um, reflects, I, I, it's a questions I regularly hear from people. Yeah. Um, given all of the things that you've been talking about um, thus far, um, how far does academic scholarship mm. benefit people trying to follow Jesus? What's the, how, yeah. You've got that kind of contrast yes. often drawn. I know. I think the, example, the parallel I draw, which some people find helpful, is music. That um, music certainly helps me a great deal and gives me um, thoughts beyond the thoughts I'd have left of my own devices. And in some music, and Bach is my particular favorite as so many people's, I feel that it's supremely true in a sense. I don't just feel it's good, I feel it's true. I don't quite know what that means, but I do feel that. 
That doesn't mean that musicologists are wasting their time in studying how Bach wrote his pieces or in how music works, uh, or even in deciding which allegedly Bach piece is not actually by him, or how a piece that's attributed to him is actually by somebody else. Those are reasonable questions that intelligent people will ask. And they do inform our understanding and interpretation of the music. Though they're not, as it were, the first line of, of, uh, that one proceeds into. You begin by loving the music, and Christians begin by loving the Bible. But then they notice things, as I was trying to suggest. You might notice the problem about Mary Magdalene not appearing in Paul's account of the resurrection appearances. And then sometimes you go on to say, well, it's not a problem. I mean, you know, Paul happened not to mention it, for example, and why not? Or you say it is a problem, and we think that Paul is not saying the same as the Gospels exactly, and where does that leave us? But those are not irrelevant or pointless questions, so they're not immediately helping you to live a Christian life. And people who don't ask them, or who can't ask them, because that's not their way their mind works, as it were, are not missing out. But those who can ask them are almost bound to do so. If you started asking these critical questions, nobody can stop you doing it. You can't stop yourself doing it, mm. I find. And you, you are no, certainly, find yeah. the same, yeah. yeah they, your questions become almost endless, don't they? They do, yes, absolutely. Mm. Another one around interpretation here, um, and it's about where you place a balance. So would you place um, more of a balance, or would you try and go, go for equality between the original language and meaning of the text, mm. the different interpretations that have happened through history, the application of teaching today? Are they of equal importance? Would you place uh, em emphasis on one or the other? Uh, this is difficult. I mean, traditionally, what's called critical biblical study has been saying, this is what people have thought the text means, but actually it means something else. And at the Reformation, this came into its own in Luther, saying the Catholic Church teaches certain things about church order, for example, um, which are not actually attested in the New Testament. Um, and you should read it in its original sense, not in the sense it's been given. And that was an important um, moment of, well, the beginning of Protestantism, saying that everything the church teaches is not necessarily true or right because it contradicts what we can see the New Testament really means. And I still think that's important. However, in modern literary study, not just in study of the Bible, reception history, noticing what people have thought texts meant and how they use them has become a very important part of what scholars and others do. And it is fascinating with the Bible to take a psalm or something like that and say, look at what Christians and Jews respectively have made of this text, and can we not learn from that? Because these are our forebears in the faith, as it were. And I think that's also important. How you strike a balance between the two things, I think mm -hmm. it's very difficult to know. And different people veer, I veer rather in the, let's get back to the original direction, but I still think how the text has been read and interpreted informs us. Mm. Others veer in the direction of saying, well, if it's been taken to mean that, it obviously can mean that. And so the sort of Reformation idea, we contradict what people have made of the text by appealing to the text itself, 
doesn't really wash. But I think it's hard to know which way to go. And all I'm doing really is to say there's a sort of menu and um, different people choose differently mm. from it. There are some people, I think, who um, I'm thinking of my own discipline, which is the study of the writings of Paul, mm. um, who would say that the most important thing is to work out what Paul meant when he wrote Romans. Mm -hmm. um, that would have a bigger influence over it. If you could work out that, yeah. that would have much more influence over your interpretation than any other yeah. interpretation. Yeah. What's your view? Well, that's interesting. I, I've got a in my word book on translation, I've got a chapter which looks at some certain words that have been translated in various ways, including faith. And um, the prophet Habakkuk in the, in the Old Testament says, the just person shall live by his faithfulness. That's probably what the Hebrew means. But um, uh, Luther interpreted it to mean the just shall live because of what he believes, because of his trust in God rather than his faithfulness towards others. And so justification by faith must be seen in one sense as a misinterpretation of Habakkuk. But of course it's an extremely fruitful one because from that comes an enormous body of doctrine which also appeals to how Paul read Habakkuk because he read it in that way and Luther picked up Paul's reading. So you've got a text which has been at one level misread and at another level has been enormously fruitful. And you, if you're a Christian theologian, you need to know both what the Old Testament text originally meant, or we might say actually means, but you also need to know what Paul and Luther made of it to give us the doctrine of justification by faith. So you need all those things. I think you can't dispense with any of them, really. Um, it, it is interesting that, I mean, in a way, the word faith, you see, in, in the Hebrew Bible tends to mean how you behave. It tends to mean acting in a faithful way rather than believing certain things. There's not much in the Hebrew Bible about believing things. There's a bit, but not very much. It's more a matter of how trustworthy you are. So rather different from how both Paul and the Reformation interpreted those, those words. Mm. And yet, you know, it seems to me that Paul and Luther and others were on to something very important, that God accepts us because we trust in him, not because we do a certain number of good things that build up credit. And that was an important point, which was made through what in, one, in a way, is a misinterpretation of a piece of the Old Testament. But those sort of paradoxes make up a lot of the history of Christian theology, I'm afraid, or perhaps glad, I don't know. <laughs> mm. um, I've got two questions that are, are relatively similar but quirkily different, which I want to ask both of them of. Um, and the first one is, what has surprised you most in studying the Bible? Mm -hmm. and what surprises other people most when you're teaching them? <laughs> right. Well, the, that, that one I can answer, and it's often to do with the dating of books in the Bible. I mean, in the New Testament, when I started having a series of tutorials on the New Testament with Austin Farrer, who was my New Testament tutor, a, a, a hallowed name in some circles still, um, he said, well, I think we should begin at the beginning chronologically. So on my little fresh pad of paper, I wrote down Matthew, because that's the first book in the New Testament. 
So he said, we're going to start with First Thessalonians. <laughs> and I found that enormously surprising. And I found ever since that people I've told who hadn't done any biblical study will also find it very surprising. But First Thessalonians, or conceivably Galatians, is the first of Paul's letters. And all of Paul's letters were written before any of the Gospels were written, as I said in my talk. And that, I think, a lot of people do find surprising. I've asked people sometimes what they thought was the oldest book in the New Testament. And many say Matthew, because it is at the beginning. Uh, and others have said, strangely, the Acts of the Apostles. I don't know whether you, you've had that said, but I, I, was quite I was quite surprised at that, because it's, most New Testament critics think it's you know, one of the later books in the, in the New Testament. But that's been an interesting uh, thing. So I think the dating of books, and then in the Old Testament, um, rather the other way around, a lot of people who haven't studied it think that many of the books in the Old Testament are much older than critics generally think they are. You know, they go back perhaps into the second millennium BC, which is fairly unlikely. I think the consensus is about the eighth century BC, which is also the age of Homer, is probably about the oldest Old Testament books go back. So that's one thing that surprises other people. I'm, I'm, what surprises me, I've been uh, trying, while saying this, to think. Um, and I think, well, I think it probably is the point I made, which still surprises me, which is how loose the fit is between Christianity as we've received it and what the New Testament actually says. And I tried to say in my talk, I'm not trying to drive a wedge between them or say the New Testament is nonsense or anything, but I am saying that the articulation of the Christian faith, as we find it in the creeds, is not like what you've got in the New Testament. And people who come to New Testament study as believers who've learned what Christianity is about and practice it, often find the New Testament a bit puzzling and a bit bewildering because it isn't like a creed or a statement of faith. Uh, it starts with stories and narratives and parables and uh, goes on then to letters, which are obviously written with a particular moment in mind that Paul is having to deal with. Not They're not general treatises, as it were. And I think I, I found that very puzzling when I first began biblical study. And in a way, I do still find it puzzling and surprising, but it seems to me that's how it is. And it's very interesting that we've got as our scriptures a work that isn't a statement of what we're meant to believe, but stories and parables and so on, which we, have, we should ponder on. Mm. Mm. And then the companion question, which I thought was fascinating to ask against the surprising question, is what's the biggest change in perception or belief that prolonged study of the Bible has given you? Mm. Yes. Well, well, I think it's, it's probably made me less dogmatic, if I can put it that way. I mean, I think I came to studying uh, theology at university, never having really done any at school. I mean, we had what in my school were called divinity lessons, which were really sort of Bible stories, rather like you might have had in a Sunday school in the past, um, which we looked at. And we, we drew maps of Paul's missionary journeys and that kind of thing. Some people here will remember with pain um, but we didn't really learn much about 
what was in the, in the Bible in the sense of what it was about. And we also learned a bit about Christian beliefs, but in a very sketchy way. And I sort of read up some of these things on my own because I was already interested in theological questions and ended up with a sort of almost a catechism in my head of, of things Christians were meant to believe and they were true and right and no one should deny them. And then I started studying the Bible and discovered it didn't quite fit and that it was challenging to that way of looking. I was never myself what people call a conservative evangelical. Um, I, I, I never had a belief in the inerrancy or perfection of the Bible to start with. In fact, when I started studying theology at university, I thought I would get the Bible bit out of the way because it would be rather boring and get on to the history of theological thought. You weren't very successful. But I wasn't that, very successful you? at all. <laughs> I got sort of, you know, becalmed, and not just in the Bible, but in Old Testament study, which fascinated me. And I never, well, I, I, so I didn't move on. I, I have read one or two things since, um, <laughs> since the 8th century BC, but, I, you know, I, I didn't, um, I, I, I was surprised to find myself studying the Bible and finding it so fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, so I didn't start by thinking the Bible is everything and then being worried when I studied it. I started by thinking the Bible wasn't anything much and ended up being impressed with it. So it's rather the other way around. Mm -hmm. There's uh, an American writer who sadly died a while back called Rachel Held Evans, who has been very influential in a lot of people's thinking about the Bible. And in one of her books, she wrote that you can find anything you want in the Bible to support your view. So mm. basically, pick a view and you'll find mm. you can support it in the Bible. Mm. Um, is it possible to keep ourselves honest when we're reading the Bible, yes. this person asks? Uh, that's a very good question, mm. I think. I mean, as I tried to say, we mostly go to the Bible with an interpretative framework. You know, if you're reading something as diverse and long and complicated and that's developed over such a long period, you almost have to have a sort of frame to draw around it. Um, and um, G.K. Chesterton once remarked that the most important aspect of a picture is the frame. And he was right in the sense that the frame defines where the picture stops. So if you see a piece of painting that doesn't have a frame, you're vaguely disturbed by it. And you do have to bring some kind of framework of interpretation to the Bible when you read it. And Christians and Jews, I tried to say, have had characteristically at least two different frames. But if you look down further into those communities, of course, you find Christians have had various different frames for reading the Bible. Catholics and Protestants have done it differently and so on. The question then is, are they seeing something that's really there and generalizing it? Or are they not seeing something that isn't there, which they're reading in? And um, biblical scholars sometimes use the word exegesis to mean interpreting texts. And in modern times, I've invented a Greek word that doesn't exist, eisegesis, meaning reading things into the text. I don't like that way of putting it, but nevertheless, there is a sense in which one ought to distinguish trying to see what the text is saying honestly and saying, well, I know what's true, and therefore I'm going to read that out of the text, whether it's really there or not. Now, nobody consciously says that, I suppose, but if you look at other people's reading of the Bible, you can sometimes see they're doing it. 
you look at your own, you tend not to see it. Uh, but one ought to be alert to that danger, I think. Yeah. I've heard it said that um, interpretation is... Um, and, uh, so so I, I do I exegesis, yeah. you do yeah. eisegesis, mm. and he just makes it all up. Uh, there's one of those um, irregular verbs. Irregular yes, verbs, yes, that's yeah. right. Yes. Lovely. Right, that's right, I think. Yeah. And, and, you know, at least being on one's guard that that will happen mm. and saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily giving you it just as it is. It is tinged with my own way of thinking about these things. It's an important piece of honesty, I think. Yeah. So, in the context of that, here's another fascinating question. After all of your studies of the Bible, can you tell us why you still have faith? Yes, I'm, I've asked that sometimes. I get emails from people saying, you've said that bits of the Bible are not historically true. How can you go on being a Christian? And I suppose I'd say that it is a real question. I mean, it's not, I don't regard it as a, in any way at all, a silly question or a, or a pointless one. But I think there's a, a spectrum. I mean, I tried at the end to say, you know, that because something isn't perfect, that doesn't mean it's totally worthless. We don't think that of anything else. And we shouldn't think it of the Bible either. And to say um, there are things in the Bible that are not true falls on a spectrum. Now, if I thought everything in the Bible was a complete lie, that Jesus had never existed, that the resurrection was a piece of nonsense, I can't see how I would go on being a Christian or having faith. But if I think that the number of Israelites who are said to have crossed the desert in the uh, books of Moses is wrong by two, I don't think that shape you know, shakes the foundations of faith. You can have that kind of thing. And the question is, I mean, I th I'm trying to say the obvious there, that um, at one end you have um, believing in really the cru most crucial things, but the other you have the problem if one rather marginal thing is slightly out. Well, somewhere between those are where most Christians who read the Bible would fall, really. And um, most people have what I would say is perhaps a rather common sense view of it all. St. Augustine wrote a long, St. Augustine of Hippo, the, the uh, early father, not Augustine of Canterbury, wrote a book called On the Agreement of the Gospel Writers, De Consensu Evangelistarum. And he looked at the places where the Gospels conflict. For example, in one tradition, John the Baptist says he's not fit to untie the sandals of Jesus. In another, he said he's not, uh, he's not fit to carry them. And Augustine says, well, they, are, they do conflict. They can't have said both. But does it really matter? And that seems to me a, a quite a sensible thing to say. On the other hand, there are places where I would see a conflict where Augustine smooths it over in a way I'm not sure I find acceptable. And he, he tends to say, where there are conflicts, they don't bear on essential matters. And something like that is true, but there may be exceptions. Mm. Mm. And so, again, there's, there's an, a cluster of questions that are all around this. Um, given that, in what sense do you think the Bible is authoritative? Mm. Well, I think that, I mean, authority lies, and this is going to be, a, I'm afraid, a very traditional Anglican position, 
lies with the tradition of the church in the sense of the Christian creedal beliefs that Christians are committed to. Scripture as a resource for Christians and as also at the same time in the sense of the source of those things, both ways, and, and reason, the ability to actually look at these things and judge rationally about them. That's the sort of classic Anglican three-legged three stool that uh, Anglican writers often talk about. And scripture is as essential as the other two, but it's not the only criterion of belief. And there are places where scripture may not exactly accord with Christian tradition, and then you have to ask which has the upper hand, and that, of course, in a way was the one of the issues between Catholics and Protestants at the Reformation, and may still be today to some extent. Uh, but then you have to ask, well, how do you decide? And Anglicans have said, well, you can only decide by looking at it reasonably, by reasoning it out. Um, but other Christians would say, well, if it's in Scripture, that trumps what's in the church's tradition. And there are some Catholics who would say what's in the church tradition trumps scripture or means we have to read scripture so as to conform with it. But I, I'm happy with the sort of three-legged thing, which I suppose is kind of why I'm an Anglican, though I'm sure historically I'm an Anglican because I was brought up as one. But I think reflecting on it, it seems to be a rational position to hold. Archaeology is another question that's asked. Um, what do you think is the importance um, of archaeology for our understanding of the Bible? Does it support it, undermine it, make it more complicated? Right. Well, I honestly think it does none of those things in a way. I think it's an independent source of evidence about, for example, ancient Israel, which is very valuable. If you're trying to understand the history of ancient Israel as it happened, you've got to take account of the archaeology. And for example, finds like those of 50, 60 years ago by Kathleen Kenyon, that the walls of Jericho can't have fallen down at the moment, the Bible seems to imply, you know, are important and were regarded at the time as quite um, shattering. Uh, but uh, most people, I think, would now say, well, that's a, an ancient story which makes some theological, religious points. But the question of whether the walls did fall down at exactly that moment is one of these matters that doesn't matter too much for faith. But it does matter if you're trying to write a history of uh, the Holy Land, of course, very much. And archaeology has been crucial in showing all kinds of things. Uh, for example, the fact that you know, the Bible talks as though there were Canaanites, or whatever you call them, in the land. And then there were Israelites who came from outside and either subjugated them or obliterated them, a conquest. Archaeology suggests much more a pattern of gradual infiltration of another group over the existing one. And in some ways, that ethnically, the two groups were indistinguishable, actually. So, I mean, that's been an important finding. And it obviously can have implications for what some people think about the modern situation in Israel-Palestine. I don't myself think it does have implications for that, but people think it does, and therefore has to be taken seriously as a matter of you know, profound discussion. Mm. Now, for one entirely different. Um, 
please elaborate on the origins of the word Bible. Of the, of the word Bible? The word oh, Bible, yes. yes. Sorry, I, I put the wrong well, emphasis there. Right. The word Bible. Bible, yes. Well, that's very interesting, and, and the, yeah, that's an important question, because, I mean, the crucial thing to know that in origin, the word Bible is a plural. Um, it's the Greek biblia, which is the plural of biblion, just like criteria is the plural of criterion. Not everybody knows that, but that's, that's the, how it works. And biblia means books, and tabiblia, the books. And early Christian writers and early Jewish writers do talk about the books and sometimes the holy books, but they don't talk about the Bible, meaning a single work. And for, for Jews, of course, in biblical times and in New Testament times, what we call the Bible was a set of scrolls, individual scrolls with each book on a scroll, or several books on one scroll, but there would be no scroll large enough to contain the whole of what we call the Old Testament. Um, and they are the books. And early Jewish writers um, refer to them that way. Um, they don't refer to them as in a singular sense as a Bible, and the same is true of Christians. What happened was that early Christians, for reasons nobody has managed to explain, stopped writing scripture on scrolls and started using a codex. In other words, what we call a book, leaves bound together with a spine which you can open rather than a scroll you have to unroll. And of course, once you have a codex for all the books in, then you've got, in a sense, a Bible. You've got a volume which contains them all. But Judaism, though it, of course, also uses codices, uh, books, has preserved a sense that they are, in some sense, really individual scrolls. And so, for example, the book of Esther, which is read at the festival of Purim not, not long ago, um, is always referred to as the scroll of Esther in, uh, in Jewish commentaries. Um, rather than as Christians would say, Esther, meaning a bit of the Old Testament. So they're, they're regarded more as individual books, even when they appear in a codex. So Bible is a kind of turning into a singular was a move that occurred in, essentially in Christian circles when there were something we could call a Bible, like, for example, the Codex Sinaiticus, which you can see in British Library, which is a fourth century manuscript of the Bible, where the books follow each other as they do in a modern printed one. Um, but Judaism has retained the sense, at least, that properly speaking, they're individual scrolls and therefore plural. I, I hope that that helps. Well, and, and I think that, that shift from mm. scroll to codex okay. is one we often forget, but is yeah. possibly one of the most important, isn't it? I think it is. Origins. And, and oddly, no one knows why. Mm. And, and Christians wrote um, biblical books on, on, in codices, but continued to use scrolls sometimes for more informal works, and Jews vice versa. So mm. sort of often in early practice, you find Christians doing the opposite of what Jews do, mm. perhaps deliberately, I don't know. And like the wonderful thing, text called the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, or Didache, which says that um, Christians are right because they fast on Wednesdays and Fridays, whereas Jews wrongly fast on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So Christians <laughs> are obviously in the right, which is, uh, I mean, a more fatuous argument would be difficult to find. Really. <laughs> so, yeah. There 
are inevitably a cluster of questions around um, the topic that um, is widely discussed at the moment among Christians, which is sexuality. Um, so rather than asking the individual questions, I thought I would ask kind of the, a broader question. Um, from your perspective mm. and your reading of Scripture, mm. what, how would you begin to engage with questions yeah. around sexuality? Well, I think um, in two ways. One is to say there are texts in the Bible, and many of us almost end my heart now, um, texts in the Old Testament and texts in Paul particularly which seem to say that um, any sexual relations between people of the same sex are wrong and to be deplored and however you read the texts I think you can't say that they don't say that seems to me um, some of them don't say it nearly as vehemently as as it were some people on one side of the, the gender wars believe but they do say it. But the second level question, which I'm afraid often doesn't get asked, is so what? Um, first of all, how important are these particular provisions? Because there are other things in the law in the Old Testament that Christians don't continue to observe. The classic, the standard example that's quoted being the food laws, which very few Christians observe, though they are there in the Bible, the kosher, the kosher regulations, there are Christian groups like the Adventists, some of whom do, but the majority of Christians don't. And you have to say, well, what differentiates that from the laws about sexuality? And one might find an answer, or one might not. Um, but then there's also the question, are the moral teachings of the Bible all on one level, or are they graded? So the impression you get from Jesus' teaching when he's asked what's the essence of the law is to say love of God and love of neighbor as it were contains or perhaps trumps all other regulations or that's how it can be read um, and how far can we push that can we say well that means that if you're loving your neighbor and that involves a sexual relationship that's not forbidden or not forbidden by God even though Paul may have not liked it or something, perhaps for cultural reasons. Or, of course, you can say, no, um, the law of love alone doesn't trump that particular set of provisions, and then you might have reasons why. And I think there are all those ways of thinking about it, and the document Living in Love and Faith, which we've had, does look at all those possibilities. And before you come to a conclusion, you need to have thought of them all. Now, Christians still come to very, very different conclusions on that basis. But those are the sort of issues you need to have in your mind, and not just to say, well, it says here, as though that closes down all argument. That would be my... my mm -hmm. And in a way, I think that brings me on to my next question, um, which is I, I experience a lot when I've been trained by scholars such as yourself, I love this idea of the multiple meanings and the multiple ways of interpreting. Um, it's, there's nothing that causes me greater pleasure than kind of ranging them all out and having mm. a really good look. Yeah. But a lot of people find that disconcerting, a little bit upsetting. Um, what kind of advice would you give yeah. um, when faced with that yeah. kind of the multiplicity of scholarship? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think I, I, when I said I started having a sort of set of dogmas mm. about Christianity and 
biblical study above all shook me in that. And um, you can be shaken in it, I think, in a salutary way by seeing there's more there than previously mm. met the eye. Or, of course, you can be shaken and you can say, well, it's all so diverse and varied and inconsistent that I don't want any more to do with it. And some people reading the Bible or indeed looking at the history of Christian theology and faith do come to that conclusion mm -hmm. that I want straightforward answers I can rely on and you're not giving me them. And I can't really deny that. that I mean, I'm, I'm, biblical scholars are not giving people straightforward answers. As on that question of sexuality, I just didn't give you a straight answer. And, and I'm not going to, because um, many of these things are a matter of individual judgment in all sorts of ways. Um, but um, tolerance of diversity and sometimes even inconsistency seems to me to be involved in accepting as our Bible this particular Bible. You could have a Bible that only taught totally consistent things. You could have a kind of religious highway code where, you know, page 57 must not disagree with page 3 under any circumstances. But, but my point, which I, I made at the very beginning, is you could have a religion with that kind of Bible. Some Christians think we have, but I think we haven't. I think we've got a Bible which is diverse and goes in many different directions. And if God wants us to have a Bible, it seems to be that kind of Bible he wants us to have. And that, so I'm trying to, in a way, to take a rather high ground, uh, rather than being on the run from people saying, you're undermining my faith by saying the Bible isn't totally certain. But that's, I think, how I'd, I'd look at that. Now, there's a question here which is um, possibly the most common question that I'm asked when um, I do talk, so I'm mm. interested to hear your answer. Mm. In your opinion, which of the translated versions would appear to be the most authentic? You mean modern English Bible? Um, yes. Yeah. I, I, I think that, I, I, well, that's how it's often asked. When, right, um, yes. so which is, which is the so real which, one. In, in short, which is the best? Right. Well, I mean, obviously, one thing people sometimes say is that it's the authorised version, the King James. And I've heard people refer to that as the original Bible. <laughs> well, it's, it's a 17th century version of 16th century translations of a book that goes back to the 8th century BC. So it's not the original Bible in any meaningful sense. Of course, the authorised version is a fantastic piece of English literature. Um, one should remember alongside that it wasn't the Bible read by Shakespeare or John Donne or George Herbert or indeed King James because they had earlier versions of the Bible that they read, like the Geneva Bible. It's later than, than most of their works. Um, but nevertheless, it's clearly a founding document of English literature and great in that respect. But it's not very accurate in this sense that it often rests on just the inaccurate manuscripts of the, of, of the Hebrew and Greek text, which were as good as people at the time could assemble. And Lancelot Andrews, whom I mentioned, and his fellow translators were people of phenomenal linguistic knowledge. They knew languages that hardly any scholars know today uh, in a time when it was very difficult to learn those languages. So, I mean, the, the, it's a wonderful basis. But the answer which I give in my book, The Word, is that there cannot be the best, most accurate English translation of the Bible. 
for the reasons I gave, that a translation is always doing two things. It's trying to be an accurate version of the original, but it's trying to do that in the language the original wasn't written in, which has its own internal logic. And a good translation somehow manages to compromise or balance those two things. But it can't be done perfectly. You can't have, for example, a translation which is completely literal in any meaningful sense. It can't go word for word because, I mean, at one level you could say, well, different languages have different word orders, for example. Uh, if you try to translate modern German into English word for word, all the verbs go to the end of many sentences and that's very confusing to an English reader. You wouldn't do it. On the other hand, of course, um, you're trying to produce something which is in modern English or some version of modern English. Um, and that may pull against what the original was saying because it, the original may involve concepts that don't exist in modern English. And you have to do your best on that side. So it's always a compromise between source and target, as they're, as they're known. And that's true not just for translating the Bible, but translating anything else. So there, there can't logically be a best Bible. Now, all the ones on the market, some are better than others. And I think there's no denying that. Um, but some are good because they're very literal. So if you're looking for a study version, things like the revised, new revised standard version are very useful because they are pretty, they're not word for word, but they're close to the original. And the new Jewish Publication Society translation of the Bible is good for the same reason. If you want something that gives you the spirit of the original without the original words, even something like Peterson's The Message, which some people will know, uh, might be uh, something you'd like to look at. Uh, now, that is not at all literal. I mean, it's, he takes the passage and reconceptualizes it in modern English and very much in modern colloquial American English. But it's very instructive to read because you can say, well, this is how the Bible strikes a reader reading it in contemporary English. And we remember that the Bible was written in contemporary Hebrew or Greek. Uh, so that's an important point to make. So my answer is there's a spectrum of different kinds of translation. And it's a good idea to be familiar with a lot, number of them, I think. So I, I can't recommend one single one. Mm. Um, we're coming to a close. Um, I've just got one last question for you before we finish. Um, for someone who is um, wanting to pick up the Bible and begin to read it, mm -hmm. what would be your top tip for how to do it? Well, I think if you're a Christian, you start with the New Testament, and I would follow my old uh, tutorial advice and read, to some extent, in chronological order, and start by reading Paul and read, um, well, Thessalonians and Galatians, which are the first two letters, probably. Um, and um, that will give you some surprises, I think. So th that's how I'd do it. And only later go on to the Gospels. So that, that would be... On the Old Testament, I would start by reading some of the history books, like 1 and 2 Samuel, which are almost like reading a novel and are very readable. And for that, a modern version, like the Jerusalem Bible, for example, is a very good way of orientating yourself. I think these are stories actually worth reading, never mind studying in detail. So I think that's how I'd go about it with a, if you're just getting into it. But I think certainly in the New Testament, starting with um, 
Thessalonian and Galatians. And what you'll see from those is the truth that various New Testament scholars have pointed out, that the New Testament does not attest to the unity of the early church, but to its extreme diversity and how Christians from the very beginning were arguing with each other. And that's a good lesson to learn, I think. <laughs> yes, probably a good le um, lesson on which to end, isn't it? Mm, maybe, um, yeah. We've always been disagreeing with each other, even from the start. Yeah. Um, in a moment, I'm going to thank John um, um, for his talk and his questions. But let me first just remind you before we end that there is a bookstall over there with our fabulous team from the shop who are ready to take your money off you and sell you a book. Um, and John will take a very short break and then we'll come back and sign books if you would like him to sign one for you. If you would like to um, listen again to this talk, it's being filmed and will be available on our website within a few days' time. Um, all you need to do is to go to um, stpauls.co.uk and find the learning library. And there you will find in a few days' time this talk. Um, but while you're there, you'll find our large range of other talks as well. And uh, you might find yourself interested um, in some of them there. Mm. But let me now thank John on your behalf. Um, John, it took me back to my days as an undergraduate, um, sitting at your feet and having my world opened before me. It was a real treat to hear your incisive and careful and thoughtful and almost tantalizing way of exploring the scriptures. Um, it, um, it, makes me want to go back again and read them um, oh. yet again, which um, I, I do regularly anyway, but thank you. Um, it's wonderful to have you with us. Um, please thank John for his time with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.